You are listening to the Mile Straight Podcast. For more information on Mile Straight or to watch a video version of this podcast, visit www.milestraightbc.org. The speaker for today is our senior pastor, Tom Goss. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 5, hopefully also as you came in, you got a study guide, and we'll be working through that. This morning's going to be a little bit different. Um, I'm actually going to speak the first half of the sermon uh, and walk through a couple verses from Matthew 5, and then uh, Roy and Pastor Tom are going to join me on stage because we're going to talk about how do you apply uh, these two verses to your life because they're very, very difficult verses to live out. And so I was kidding them. I said, hey, we've got to have some experts come up here on stage to show us how to do that. And so they're going to come up and join us. But we're looking at part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you know much about the Sermon on the Mount, that was from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. Uh, the most powerful uh, message. I don't know if I can say the most powerful, but an incredibly powerful message that Jesus taught. Uh, next Sunday, our students were supposed to, there were eight of us, we're supposed to leave for Israel. Uh, it's part of Student Leadership University. And one of the places I was looking, and it got canceled because of the violence that's going on in the Middle East right now. But one of the places I was most looking forward to was going to the Sea of Galilee. And just above the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus gave this incredible sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we're going to have to wait a year to be able to go there. But hopefully next year it will work out. But today we're going to look at the passage, uh, a couple verses from the passage, the sermon that he spoke there at the Sermon on the Mount. And again, I want to just try to unpack these two verses. And these are two difficult verses to live out. And you'll see as we study them together, they are. And, and my prayer is today that God would give us his wisdom and give us his desire and help us to see how we live these out faithfully today as Christians. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we look at his word. God, first of all, I just want to thank you for your word, your perfect, infallible word and God, as we study it today, I pray that your spirit would teach us, help us to understand exactly what your word means, and also, Lord, help us understand how to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 5, we're going to be looking today at verse 43 and verse 44. Verse 43 of Matthew 5, this is Jesus preaching. He says, you have heard that it was said. Now, let me stop right there. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. If Jesus says those words, you know that he's getting ready to make a correction. He's getting ready to say, you have heard that it was said. You've heard the religious leaders say this. But I'm going to correct what they've said. Because what they have said is wrong. Jesus is getting ready to challenge something that the religious leaders were teaching. But not just were religious leaders teaching this. This was something that... The Jewish families had heard over the years, and they just accepted. And so they were teaching the next generation of Jewish kids this same thing. And it was going from one generation to the next. And it was a quote from Leviticus chapter 19. But the problem was the religious leaders had decided to edit the verse a little bit. And they cut out a little part, and then they added a part to it. And we'll see that together as we look at it. So Jesus says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate 
your enemy. That was what the religious leaders were teaching. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Again, that's what Jewish families would teach their kids. We're to love our neighbors, but hate our enemies. So who were they talking about? Who, who is the neighbor? Well, neighbor really means somebody near, somebody nigh. But they took it to say what that means is your fellow Jew. You're to love your fellow Jew. You're to care for your fellow Jew. But you are to hate the Gentiles and the Samaritans. You're to hate the non-Jewish people. That's who you are to hate. Now, what did Leviticus 19 verse 18 actually say? This is a verse, again, that they're using, but they had changed it. Let's see how they changed it. This is what Leviticus 19 18 actually said. This is the second part of the verse. But you shall love your neighbors as yourself. That's what God's law said in Leviticus. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. So what do we notice? What's the difference between what Jesus is, is saying the religious leaders were teaching in Matthew 5 from what Leviticus 19 actually said? Well, the first thing that we notice is they don't include as yourself. They took that part out. Now, why did they take out you shall love your neighbor as yourself? Well, God's law, when it, when it included this part, was saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is how you love the way that you care about yourself, you're to care about others. You're to care about your neighbors. The way that you care about your family, guess what? You're to care about other people that same way. That's what God's law said. That's what the law was instructing the people, how to love. Love people with such a love. It's not just selfish love. You're loving people like you love yourself. That's what he was saying. But they had changed it. And they taken out as yourself. And so what they did, though, is they added something to it. You should love your neighbor as yourself and hate your enemy. That's not what God said. But that's what they, they just took a natural reasoning. Well, if you're loving your neighbor, well, you hate your enemy then. And that's what they taught. And that's what they were teaching. The religious leaders had basically taken God's law, which was to say basically how we are to love. And they changed it to whom you are to love. They changed the whole focus of what God's law said. It was teach us how we are to love other people, but instead it says, this is who you are to love. That's what they were teaching. Love your neighbors, but hate your enemies. Verse 44, Jesus corrects them. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't think we have any clue today in 2021 how shocking and how controversial Jesus' words would have been to the first century people listening to this. Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. They'd never heard anything like that. Oh, they heard, heard about loving, loving your neighbor, your fellow Jew. Love my enemies? Love the Gentiles. Love the Samaritans. That's what they're saying. For centuries, they'd heard exactly the opposite. And listen, they thought they were obeying God when they loved their fellow Jew, and they hated the Gentiles. They thought they were obeying God because that's what they were taught. And after all, it made sense to them. The Jews were the only people that were obeying God's law. The, the Gentiles, the Samaritans... They were not obeying God. So, of course, God wanted them to hate them, 
right? Jesus comes on the scene, he says, no. Wrong. 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 You are to love your enemies. You are to love the Gentiles. You are to love the Samaritans. And not only that, but you are to pray for those who persecute you. You know, the saying is, returning good for good is human. You know, people are nice to you, you're nice to them. We take care of our family, they're nice to us. We take care of our friends, that's human. Returning evil for good is demonic. When you do good to somebody and they return evil, that's, that's not right. That's demonic. But returning good for evil, that's Christ-like. That's what God's called us to do. That's what nobody else in the world does. God has called us to return good for evil. Somebody does evil to you, you return good to them. It's been said that Jesus' life was the best commentary on his words. Jesus said a lot of things, but did he live them? Absolutely, he did. Jesus lived out perfectly, loving his enemies and praying for them. You remember the scene, Jesus hung on a cross. He was mocked. He was persecuted. He was suffering. And he prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. Church, you and I have been called to love those who oppose you. To love those who hate you. To love those that despise your Christian beliefs. To love those that will persecute you because of your Christian beliefs. God has called us to love people that will destroy our nation. God's called us to love people that will take away our freedoms. God has called us to love people that will take away all of our religious liberties. That's what God has called us to do. To love them and to pray for them. Not to pray, oh God, please just destroy them all. Just, just bring your wrath down. No. God, please have mercy. Please have mercy on these people. You know, to do that is supernatural. We can't do that on our own. God has to work in our lives and has to bring a humility that only God can bring. A humility that recognizes that honestly, there's nothing good about any of us. You know what? Sometimes as Christians, we think, well, yeah, we're pretty good people. You know, the world out there, the honest truth is we're not. We're sinners, depraved. The difference is we've met Jesus Christ, and his grace has changed our life. There's a lot of the world that hadn't met Jesus, and it's our call to reach them. We're not going to reach them, though, through hate. We're going to reach them by loving them, even when they hate us. I told you this is not an easy thing to apply. But this is what God says. This is what Jesus said. Paul was writing to the Roman believers in Romans chapter 12. And if you know much about Rome, Rome was not a very nice place to Christians in the first century. And Paul's writing to the Romans, and this is what he said. Here's how you are to live. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Don't be arrogant. But associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. That's what Paul told the Roman believers. Believers that were being persecuted every day. Do everything you can not to return evil for evil. Live in peace as much as you possibly can with people. How are we doing today, Christians, in 2021? Does the world look at us as peacemakers? Or do they look at us as going toe-to-toe with them in a fight? Then you might say, well, does this mean Christians can't stand for truth or never stand for truth? Absolutely not. This does not mean that at all. But truth, listen to me, must be in a posture of grace, not in a posture of hate. To be communicated. It's got to be in a posture of grace and love. And I'm afraid too many times it's not. So how does this look? How does it really look in 2021? How do we live this out? I'm going to ask Tommy and Roy to come on and join me on stage. So we, we want to just kind of ask three questions and, and kind of uh, just try to answer them about really how do we apply these words. Because these words are easy to read. They're incredibly difficult to live. Um, so first of all, just how do we live out this, these two verses? Especially in today's divided world, divided America. How do we live these out? Well, for me, I was thinking about... Uh, how difficult it is for me to follow this, this teaching of Jesus. And I just thought, you know, it's easier for me to be able to look at someone who does it properly and learn from them. And uh, I found a couple of illustrations of people, I think, that do that well. You mentioned one earlier. The first one was a guy who was in his community. He was working for the benefit of his community, and yet the community hated him deeply. They hated him so deeply that they decided they were going to put him to death, and they followed through on that. And it wasn't just a bang, bang, you're dead death, uh, dead death, I think I said that right, but this was a, a, a terrible, excruciating, painful death from beginning to end. It was horrible. It was the most horrific death they could lavish on someone. And he died by people that should have loved him, was killed by people who should have the second guy was one who was hated so deeply by his community that they beat him, they stoned him, they threw him in prison. And when they couldn't kill him that way, they eventually cut his head off. The first one you'd mentioned, that's Jesus, of course. Jesus had loved the people so deeply, had done so many acts of kindness and love among them. I mean, he had, he had reached out to them, healing their sicknesses, casting out demons, making people who couldn't walk before suddenly be able to walk. Jesus had done so much, and yet they hated him so deeply. The second guy, of course, is the Apostle Paul, who also had shown such incredible love for the people and the things that he did on their behalf and yet they hated him so deeply that they would put him through all of these things 
Both of these guys had been hated by the people that they were ministering to. And they knew how deeply these people hated them. I mean, it was quite obvious. They knew it. And yet, these two gave us such an incredible example of how to respond to people who hate us. People who don't like us. People who wish us harm. People who wish us dead. Jesus, on the cross, in his dying words, Mickey mentioned it earlier, he said, Father, would you forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having that kind of a grace to extend to people who wanted you dead, who had just put you through the torment you'd gone through? And then in the other case with the Apostle Paul, he had said on one occasion, he said, it is my heart's desire for these people, these people who hate me, who despise me, who stone me, who beat me, who throw me in prison on a continual basis, these people who will eventually remove my head, it is my desire for them that they would be saved. He also said, I would wish myself to be accursed so that they might know Christ. In other words, I would trade places with them. I would, I would take their punishment in hell if it meant that they could take my benefits in heaven. Can you imagine such incredible, incredible love? Now, they had learned this and seen this firsthand from God the Father. God said he allowed the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That he allowed it to pour out on those who loved him and those who hated him. God showed us his great love by sending his son Jesus Christ to those who had rejected him, those who would despise him, those who would spit on him, who would nail him to a cross. He allowed his son to be crucified on their behalf. It's incredible to think about. What we see in all of these is that regardless of whether the person loved or hated The main person, Jesus, Paul, God himself, always did what was best for others. Always did what was best for others. So <clears throat> then you forget about what's being done to you personally, and you look at what God wants us to do, and that is what's best for others. Well, the question, how do we live out this passage in today's divided world, has already been addressed very well. We have to realize, too, that as you read the passage that Brother Mickey is using with us today in Matthew 5, 43, and on beyond verse 44, you'll find that the word love is used four times in three verses. So it is a key word right here. And it's talking about the love of God. So the only way that we can live out this passage in today's world is, do we know the love of God personally? Do I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And, and without that personal relationship with Christ, you'll not be able to put into practice what Jesus is teaching us to do right here. So we have to know that we've had a personal relationship with Christ. And then we have to let his love permeate our lives. And it's going to override the carnal inclination to sometimes lash out to others, to sometimes seek revenge when something has been done. Because not only is love the topic right here, but you'll find that forgiveness is the topic. God's forgiveness forgives when others have done it wrong. And our natural inclination is to seek revenge, to get even. And yet, if we let the love of God permeate our lives, then we can forgive even, even when that person has not asked for our forgiveness. We can still have that forgiven spirit. 
and attitude. And by the way, the world is watching to see if we practice what we preach. We use that phrase a lot, practice what you preach. And if you're not showing the love of God in your life, then you're going to have a hard time winning the world for Christ. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, so good, Roy. It's, it really has so much to do with, with our own personal walk with, with Jesus and how we're going to respond to the world when they, you know, it, I mean, it hurts when, when people don't have your best interest or your family's interest in mind and they do things or, or say things about you that might not be truthful. To respond back with love, that is, that is just not natural. God has to give you the grace, the humility to do that. And uh, that's only through walking with him that you can do that. Let's, let's go ahead and move on to the second question. Um, how do we stand for truth in our post-Christian culture, and what does that look like? You know, we talk a lot about love and humility. Does that mean we just kind of lay down and let people walk on us? Which I know it doesn't. But how, how do we still stand for truth in our post-Christian uh, culture? Well, the two guys that we talked about, Paul and Jesus, of course, took a very bold stand for truth. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. It is the truth that brings freedom. And so Jesus was very clear, even though it meant that he would be harmed, that he would physically be harmed. Paul was very clear, even though he would be tortured and, and put through so much about speaking truth to the people. Why? Because that's what they desperately needed. They needed to hear truth. I think sometimes we get this reversed to where what we need out of it is to win the argument. And so it's not so much about what can I do that's best for you, it's what can I do that's best for me. So we're in this battle of wits, so to speak, and there's nothing godly about that. It's all based on pride. You talked about earlier how we've got to rid ourselves of pride. It's all based on my pride. I've got to win the argument. What I have to begin to see is that there's something more important than winning the argument. And that is pointing people to our Savior. Allowing them to know the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, as Jason was talking about earlier. The hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. I've got to point them to that hope. Do I need to repeat everything I said the first time? <laughs> is, this, is this on? should be. It is on? Yeah. Okay, now you can hear me. All right. Uh, so how do we stand for truth in a post-Christian culture? First thing we're going to have to do, and this really applies to us who are older, we're going to have to realize that we are living in a post-Christian culture. Uh, we are living in a day and age where a majority of our people in the United States of America and our society where we live do not embrace Judeo-Christian values. And as long as we ignore that, we're not going to be able to address the real issues that are out there. So we understand that we are in a post-Christian culture. So how does, how does that affect me? First of all, I have to know the Bible. I have to know the scriptures for myself. We make a grave mistake when we say, okay, my pastor and the pastoral staff, they've been properly trained, they've studied theology, they have the degree, we let them take care of that. Every believer in this auditorium this morning needs to know our belief system, what we believe about the Word of God. And the only way we can do that is we need to read and study the Bible for ourselves. And fortunately, we live in a world today where there are plenty of study aids where everybody in here can study the Bible, not just on Sundays when we're at church, but all through our lives and all through the week, we can get to know the Bible better so that we then can articulate 
what we believe as we engage in conversations with people who do not believe what we believe. And so we need to know the scriptures. And then the second thing we need to do is we need to know the culture that we're in. We need to be aware of what our culture is doing. Now, in my Sunday school class this morning, we talked a little bit about the fact that we live in a day when culture changes. And I've taught cultural anthropology before in Bible colleges to students who are preparing to go to the mission field. And one of the things we learn, and I've said this often, I've said it here before, no culture is stagnant, no culture stays the same. Every culture goes through change. What is happening in our life in the 21st century is that because of technology, culture is changing much more rapidly than it used to change. And so that's why we can live in a world where we have two or three generations together in the same room, but we have different belief systems that are in existence. So I have to be able to know the Bible, to know what I believe, to engage in a post-Christian world, but I also have to be aware of where this culture is. And you can have a second generation coming up after one generation, and they might have a different belief system. And so we, we have to be aware of that. When I was uh, taking a course in seminary, Warren Wiersbe, who is a great Bible teacher, uh, was teaching this course, and he said one of the things that every preacher needs to do is to listen to pop music so that he can be aware of what the next generation is believing because music is one of the things that we use in the arts, and by the way, it is a component of culture, but music is how people express their beliefs, their values, their morals, or their lack of morals. And so he said every preacher needs to know the current music, pop music, so he can be aware of what the next generation believes so that then he can reach that person, that generation. And I believe that applies to us. For those of us who are older, that specifically applies to us. It's, it's more difficult. I'm in my mid-60s. And as I go on, it's becoming more and more difficult to engage with a younger generation because our worlds are spinning in a different way. Now, today, my wife and I, as I go over to our Spanish ministry after here, my wife and I, are, we're teaching in children's church today. So I'm going from some of you senior citizens, me included, to these kids today, and that's good. Now, sometimes that's a stretch for me, but I need to be aware of where that next generation is if I want to be successful in reaching them with the gospel. So I'm glad you mentioned that about the pop music. So when they hear your car leaving and all that thumping, listen to rap, they'll understand why you're listening to that, right? Uh, well, it depends. I, that's when you take your hearing aids out. <laughs> uh, I just want to mention one, one other thing about truth. I think that we communicate truth today just like Jesus did. And the way Jesus did it, uh, he did speak to crowds, but the main way Jesus did it is he took a group of 12 guys and he invested his life into those 12 guys. Truth is best communicated in the context of relationships. It's not best communicated on social media. I mean, we like to go on social media and say this stuff, and most of the time all that does is damage. But truth can be communicated through loving people and spending time and giving your life to them. That's how truth, just like Jesus did, is communicated in 2021. And I think, sadly, is we're not doing that as effectively as we need to do as a church to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, let's let, move on let to... Me, let me yeah, add yeah, one yeah. thing. I was just thinking of what Roy was saying, how we have to know our culture and respond appropriately. Uh, one of the great examples of that is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was in 
uh, the city of Athens, I believe it is. I'm going on memory here, so it's not a good thing for me. But uh, he was in, in Athens. He noticed all of the different idols to all the different gods. And he was trying to find an entrance in to talk to the people about Jesus Christ. And the way he approached that was not by going in and saying, Look at the ridiculousness of you people. Unfortunately, social media would have probably approached it that way. Because we can hide, hide behind the computer screen and we can say what we want to. But what Paul did was say, You know, I was noticing you're a very religious people. And I happened to see one of the gods that said to the unknown God. And he said, that's the God I want to talk to you about. He, he approached them in a loving way without trying to create division. He approached them in a way in which they would listen. And many of them listened and responded to that message. I kind of thought about, you know, our whole Four Saudi Daisy movement has been about just loving our community. We want to love our community so that we can build a relationship with our community. So that we can share with them the truths of God. Without that relationship, uh, I think it's very, very difficult. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to the, the third uh, question. Uh, what are some possible blind spots for Christians in dealing with people that we disagree with? And let me just kind of set this up a little bit. And I told Anna I was going to say something about her, so I'm going to embarrass her. But Anna's in the process of learning how to drive. Okay? So one thing that happens when your kids learn how to drive is... The parents' prayer life really goes up. I mean, you know, we're just praying. Well, yesterday was the first time she, we went to Rhonda and Jeremy Taylor's house on the mountain. So she drove from our house all the way up on the mountain. And we made it somehow. I don't know. But anyway, uh, one of the things I was talking to her about was when you drive, there's blind spots. No matter how many mirrors you have, there's always areas that you can't see. That's why you've got to know when you're driving, you kind of got to know what's going on around you. Because you just can't trust always in your mirrors. Because there's some things you don't always see. And in, in our lives as Christians, I feel like there, there is some blind spots that trip us up. And especially in dealing with people we disagree with. So I want us to talk about what some potential blind spots and how do we deal with that. Well, Brother Mickey just showed his age. Because he <laughs> says when you drive, there's blind spots. Not if you have a Tesla. <laughs> it's got all these cameras around, so see, the younger generation would know that. That's all right? true. <laughs> but uh, how do we deal with blind spots? Because we, we do all, seriously, we have blind spots in our lives. And part of it is what I was saying a minute ago. If we ignore the cultural distinctives that are coming along in the next generation, then we will miss it. We, we have these blind spots. And, and, and keep in mind that when I talk about the cultural differences, we're not just talking about another country. We're talking about the cultural differences within our own world that we live in, with our own society. But I think one of the biggest blind spots we have is what Pastor Tom has just alluded to, and that is uh, we sometimes break into an argument when discussing things like this with other people. We've got to be able to discuss our different belief systems. I believe that God is holy. I believe that God is just. I believe that God is a righteous God. And then I'm talking with somebody who does not espouse those same values. Can I engage that person in a conversation expressing the word of God, expressing my belief system, without getting into a fistfight or an all-out argument? Because some, one of the things that happens is if we have a profound uh, faith and belief in the word of God, and the inerrancy of the scriptures, and which we should have, 
we sometimes go to the extreme if the other person does not accept our point of view or what we're saying then we get into an argument and we'll never ever convince the people by arguing with them by proclaiming God's word yes we can but not by getting into a fight and an argument and unfortunately many times in our Christian world that's what happens we get emotionally involved in these conversations to the point where we get charged up I, I tend to have a loud voice anyway and my wife says you don't have to say it so loud you know calm down just a little bit and so a lot of times when I believe something I don't realize that the tone of my voice is increasing you know and my emotions are starting to show through and so we really have to be aware of that when we're talking to somebody especially about biblical and spiritual matters I, I think that there's also the thought that <clears throat> the blind spot is sometimes that I think I can do it in my own ability that I think somehow I can have the expertise or the experience required in order to love people who don't love me back. The truth of the matter is that that's a working of God's Spirit in my life. The Spirit of God produces in my life the fruit of the Spirit, which is something I cannot produce myself. So then I have to surrender to God's Spirit so that He, in turn, will give freedom to His Spirit to work through me to produce those things I can't produce. It is the only way the only way that love can come out of me for people that don't like me. It's the only way. I think to change then, once we get to that place where we're allowing the Spirit of God to work in our life, an additional blind spot is that we view people as enemies. Uh, the Bible teaches that we are to judge the fruit of someone to determine if they are truly a follower of Christ, but we are not to judge the motives of their heart. I don't know why someone does what they do. I can think I understand that. In fact, I'm guilty of trying to determine why people do what they do. I do that a lot. I really do. And yet God teaches me that's not your place. That's my place. So then I think it's beneficial for us to adjust the way we view people. Instead of viewing them as an enemy, we view them as someone who desperately needs Jesus Christ. And, and when I begin to view someone in light of that, and I begin to pray for them as I view them that way, I begin to pray that God will get a hold of their hearts, that God will draw them to salvation and repentance. When I begin to pray intently that God will bring them to a saving knowledge of His Son, then all of a sudden something changes, something changes in my life. All of a sudden, it's not a me versus you. It's what can I do to help you find Jesus Christ. Makes a big difference in the way I can approach people that I meet, and especially those who don't like me. Uh, I was just going to kind of add in, you know, Satan loves division. And he, he'll do everything he can to bring confusion and division. And one of the ways that Satan works is through fear, especially with Christians. Fear, especially of people that we don't understand uh, or we never spend time with. Uh, I could talk about race, that for the most part, uh, I'm only spending time with Caucasian people. And so there's a fear of other races. Or I could talk about uh, religions. I uh, don't spend a lot of time with uh, Muslims. And, you know, Satan wants to bring this fear of Muslims or LGBTQ people. 
I don't spend much time there. And, and not to say that we're going to agree with these people. A lot of them, we have very different beliefs. But here's the thing. If, if, if it goes back to truth is communicating relationship, if we're not trying to build any relationships with people different than us, then all it's going to be is this separation is going to continue to be there. And it's, we're going to fear them, and they're going to fear us. And there's never going to be this peace and unity that, that God's called, especially within the church. Now, I realize the world's never going to be a peaceful place, but the church should be. We should be following the great peacemaker, Jesus Christ. We should do everything we can to break down walls that are worldly divisions. And we should love people that the world's not loving. And uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. I naturally don't want to do that. But I'm praying for God's grace that he would help me to do that. Because I know that's what he's called me to do. Um, let me, we just kind of wrap up our time. We're kind of talking about the difference in the world's mindset. And then what Christ said. And so here's some, here's some kind of an overview. They're big uh, differences you'll see. Let's go ahead and show. So Christ has called us to be humble. The world is not interested in humility at all. If you don't believe that, just turn on a ball game and watch the way the guys act and just watch the world. There's, there's no humility. God's called us to be different. He has. He's called us to humble ourselves just like he humbled himself. Next one, to sacrifice. Not to be about power, not to acquire everything. That's the worldly way. God has called us to sacrifice and give away. Thirdly, God has called us, like I just mentioned, to be about peace. The world is about driving more and more separation and division. But God's not called us to be like that. Fourthly, God's called us to be generous. God's called us to give away, not to be greedy and try to acquire everything for ourselves. Fifthly, God's called us to be about others first. Not to be entitled, not this entitlement. And I would even say this as far as the church, because I realize it. I mean, I lived in an America that has been, for the most part, respectful of Christians and respectful to church. And honestly, that's not been most cultures. We've lived in a very unique time. But that time is fading away, people. And I, sometime in my heart, I just like, wait a minute, this is not, America's supposed to be about God. You know, I feel this entitlement that you're, you're, you know, people are doing it wrong by taking it away from God. They're just doing what they naturally want to do. They don't love God and they're trying to take the world that way. But I get kind of proud and like, no, you can't do that. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm just going to 